Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say... You really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! The fourth prestigious King of the Ring, Stone Cold Steve Austin, an incredible victory. That's the voice of Michael P.S. Hayes, one of the legendary fabulous Freebirds. At this point in 1996, he's going by the name Doc Hendricks, which is a silly footnote in wrestling history, but also kind of relevant here. Hayes, a.k.a. Hendrix, is on a small raised stage on the floor of the Mecca Arena in Milwaukee, away from the ring, kind of beside the tunnel where the wrestlers enter and exit from. It's covered to look like stone, I think, and decorated with golden columns, a purple robe, and a red carpet leading up to a big golden throne. Get the picture? The man he's introducing just won the King of the Ring tournament by taking down WWE legend Jake the Snake Roberts, the sort of luminary that, even at the tail end of his in-ring career, deserves the respect of every pro- Just kidding. This isn't Wimbledon, it's pro wrestling, and the man approaching the throne is the quintessential sore winner, Stone Cold Steve Austin. The first thing I want to be done is to get that piece of crap out of my oh, ring. Come on. Don't just get him out of the ring, get him out of the WWF. Because I've proved, son, without a shadow of a doubt, you ain't got what it takes anymore. Pro wrestling, it should be said, is not a world of niceties. Pro wrestling is a world of, hey, busters, and I'm talking to yous. It's a world of explicit violence and catchphrase bluster. And yet still, this wasn't what the crowd was expecting. Stone Cold Steve Austin was not what the wrestling world was expecting but he was exactly what it needed. From Spotify and The Ringer, this is The Book of Wrestling, 25 catchphrases that explain the Attitude Era. I'm David Shoemaker. I cannot believe that any man in his right mind, after being burnt the way I burned you, Steamboat, I dropped you like a bad habit, my man, on a concrete floor. They carted you out on a stretcher. And you don't have Jake the Snake is an 80s wrestling icon. A scofflaw with a handlebar mustache and a boa constrictor named Damien that he'd dump atop his beaten opponents. The ultimate indignity. Here's the thing about Jake. He was over. That's wrestling lingo for popular with the fans. Well, kind of. Loved if you're a babyface or hated if you're a heel. If you're over, then what you're doing is working. In the 80s, Jake was positioned as a bad guy, but he was just too cool, and his voice was just too hypnotic, and the snake was just a fucking snake. In 1986, back when fans generally followed along with the good guy, bad guy designations dictated by the script, Jake defied categorization. 
He got cheered in a match against Macho Man Randy Savage on Saturday night's main event to the audible disbelief of Vince McMahon and Jesse the Body Ventura, who were on commentary. Now, Jesse, the fans are definitely behind that man, Jake the Snake, because it surprised you. Well, yeah, it does surprise me, but I'll tell you what, I can't imagine people getting behind a snake and cheering a snake. When they tried to set him up as an opponent for ultra good guy Hulk Hogan, the fans cheered for Roberts and derailed the whole storyline. They eventually made him a good guy and then turned him heel again. You might remember him shutting the Ultimate Warrior in a coffin or um, sicking a cobra on Savage in the middle of the ring. Truly awesome, ridiculous stuff. Which is all to say that Roberts was wrestling royalty. And when he made his return to WWE in 1996, well, he may have been past his prime, but his credentials were unimpeachable. He'd gone through some rough spots outside the ring, dealing with personal demons, as they say in the biz, and had regained his stride with the aid of born-again Christianity. So for Austin to just mercilessly beat the crap out of him and then rub his face in it afterward, well, it got your attention. It wasn't quite as shocking, though, as making a direct frontal assault on Robert's faith. You sit there and you thump your Bible and you say your prayers and it didn't get you anywhere. In case you couldn't tell, Austin is working heel here. He's not outwardly trying to be some new kind of anti-hero. He's being a jerk. Pro wrestling heels have said some of the vilest things to ever make it on television. Racially insensitive things, sexist things, just generally cruel things. But it's all shrouded in the veil of villainy. But sacrilege? Sacrilege was seen by many as off-limits, no matter what. That line wasn't just a swing at Roberts, for the record, but at everyone who's ever thanked God for a sports victory, which, where Austin comes from in Edna, Texas, is a lot of folks. It's Friday Night Lights country. You win a game, you point at the John 3.16 sign behind the end zone, and you thank the Lord for your win. You know where this is going. Talk about your psalms, talk about John 3.16. Austin 316 says I just whipped your ass. Listen to that again. Talk about your psalms. Talk about John 316. Austin 316 says I just whipped your ass. And that, that was the moment pro wrestling changed forever. I got Michael Hayes on the phone to tell me about it. I had no idea where he was going. And, you know, when he said that, it was, to me, somewhat kind of like blasphemy. At that time, nobody would ever reference that. Now, you, you got to keep in mind, in my early years, I was raised a Catholic. So that was really, you know, like, you would never joke about anything biblical or, or anything like that. Obviously, things have changed now. But, you know, to say <laughs> Austin 316 just whooped your ass, I was, holy, did, did that make it on air? <laughs> you know? The bigger surprise, if you ask some people, is that Steve Austin himself was on the air in that spot with the opportunity to run his mouth to begin with. I should note here, Steve Austin isn't really Steve Austin's name. When he was starting his career, Steve Williams was his name, but there was a problem. There was another wrestler named Steve Williams, and having two Steve Williamses just wouldn't do. Steve Williams number one did have a handy nickname, Dr. Death. But Steve Williams number two, he was gonna need a whole new name. He was from Texas and Austin is the capital and nobody could think of a better way to disambiguate the Steve Williamses, so they just named him, well, you already know the answer, Steve Austin. Steve's one reservation was that Steve Austin was also the name of the main character in the TV show, The Six Million Dollar Man, but he didn't have any better ideas before the bell rang in his first match. That amazing show 
was about an astronaut who nearly dies after a test flight accident and his body is rebuilt. It's a pretty good association for Stone Cold Steve Austin, who had so many major surgeries and reconstructions over the course of his career that they would end up calling him the bionic redneck. Anyways, Austin started out in world-class championship wrestling, home of his teacher, Gentleman Chris Adams. Made his way to WCW, where he was always on the cusp, but never quite in the main event. It didn't help that his ascent coincided with the arrival of Hulk Hogan and later the launch of the NWO. Austin definitely had it. If not quite the it of irrepressible stardom, he definitely had the it of that man as a pro wrestler. Blonde hair, solid physique, and blue eyes that could reach into your soul and punch it. Hard. But he didn't have a place in mid-90s WCW, and when he tore his triceps, head honcho Eric Bischoff fired him. Austin moved to ECW, the indie rock concert of pro wrestling, which was run by his old WCW manager Paul Heyman. Austin wasn't really healed up yet, but he could talk, and talk he did. He remade himself as a character, a, a good promo, as they say in the biz. The kind of guy you could hand a mic to and watch the fireworks go. His next stop was WWE, where they called him the Ringmaster. It's a lousy name, but somehow it was the best idea they could come up with. For the record, some of the other names they considered were, and I'm not making this up, Fang McFrost, Snowman, Otto Von Ruthless, Mr. Freeze, Chili McFreeze, Cool Cat, Cruel Luke, and Ice Dagger. Yeah. They put Austin with the million-dollar man Ted DiBiase as his manager, and they gave him the million-dollar championship too, which is maybe the coolest-looking belt in wrestling history, but it somehow looked like an ill-fitting sports coat on Austin. Thankfully, he evolved. He shaved his head, he ditched DiBiase, and he changed his nickname to Stone Cold, and management saw a glimmer of something. That something was Austin realizing the power of being himself. Definitely. And, you know, at that time, you have to imagine, you know, especially for those that are listening, that are too young, we're too young. The whole industry, the whole business was getting ready for a makeover because the audience at the time was tired of the sweet, saccharine kind of wrestling with the outlandish characters. And they wanted stuff that was more real. So here's how it went down. King of the Ring was a tournament to crown, sometimes literally, a winner who could, if he so choose, wear a crown and a cape around and bask in the royal symbolism of it all. Harley Race was the first guy in WWE to parade around like real royalty. And the apex of the gimmick was probably Booker T becoming King Booker, complete with scepter and pseudo-British accent. Sometimes, though, the King of the Ring tournament was just a tournament that somebody won, and Austin would be in that category. Austin beat Bob Sparkplug Holly on Raw on June 3rd to qualify for the tournament, and then he beat Savio Vega on June 17th in the first round. Those two guys are a good measure of how WWE was already evolving. Holly debuted as Sparky Plug, a wrestling NASCAR driver, but the name was changed with no explanation other than the obvious. Sparky Plug was ridiculous. He would go through a few other iterations of his character before emerging on the other side of the Attitude Era as Hardcore Holly, because, well, hardcore. Savio Vega was a Puerto Rican wrestler who wrestled under the name of TNT. He made his on-screen debut in WWE as Quang, a masked, ambiguously Asian villain, before being retrofitted into Savio Vega, Puerto Rican upstart and childhood friend of Razor Ramon. Eventually, he would lead a crew called Los Bariquas. Which is all to say, on the timeline of WWE wrestling gimmicks, at King of the Ring, we're past the Asian menace, wrestling race car driver era, but not yet to the hardcore Puerto Rican street gang era. The flashpoint that'll take us to that next level 
this is it. At the King of the Ring pay-per-view, Austin faced off against Mark Merrow in the semifinals in the first match of the night. Merrow, for his part, wrestled in WCW as Johnny B. Bad, a wrestling little Richard. I would love to add more nuance to that description, but there isn't any. In WWE, he took on his real name and his real boxing background and tried to modernize, but he never really caught on. Well, certainly not to the degree of his real-life wife, Sable, who was the sort of Helen of Troy of the Attitude Era. Merrow was a capable hand in the ring, but that night in Milwaukee, he botched a move and busted open Austin's mouth. They rushed the ending, and Austin went straight from the locker room to the hospital to get 16 stitches. You know, at first, you could see that he got his lip cut. You didn't know how, you know, how bad it was and, and w w what the treatment could be. And then when he got backstage, it was like, wow, you, you know, luckily, luckily there was a hospital, like, very close. And, you know, it's like, man, go get that thing sewed up. Coming back from the ER, Austin got back to the arena with seconds to spare. When his cab pulled up, Hayes was standing there waiting for him. I'm standing in the garage expecting somebody to bring him back, and somebody did. It was a friggin' taxi cab. He comes <laughs> in the taxi cab. Is he wait, wearing Is he wearing his gear? Like, what, how yes. do you, what is he? He's <laughs> he still dressed. So he gets out of the cab in like black briefs? Like that's, is that, that's just- That's it, man. There's no way to know what inspired Austin to say what he said that night. Maybe it was the urgency of the moment. Maybe it was Austin seeing his opportunity slipping away. Maybe it was the few words Hayes had time to relay to him to set it up. I wasn't officially set to go, go in the garage and wait on him. But you know, it was, the clock was ticking and it was getting closer. And uh, boy, he showed up in the nick of time. And then he just simply asked me, hey, what'd Jake say? And I said, well, he just kind of quoted some, you know, biblical uh, references and uh, said something about John 3.16. All right, I got it. That was it. For the record, here's Jake's promo that unintentionally inspired a million signs and even more t-shirts. It, in itself, is a thing of beauty. I mean, it's Jake. But its eloquence stands in such stark contrast to Austin's hard-nosed pithiness that it feels almost, I don't know, magical. Like they say, it couldn't have been any better if it was scripted. You know, I was blind, but now I see. I was deaf, and now I can hear. You know, I was, my soul was purchased by the blood of the Lamb, brother. So how can I lose if I just go out there and know the power above is reaching down and lifting me up? Yes, 450 pounds is nothing you want to play with, and I don't plan on playing, but I'll tell you something. If I was going to rob a bank, I wouldn't walk in the front door. I'd sneak up from behind. It's time to get serious. If I can get by Vader, I know I got stone cold. Lord help me. I'm going to do it. Here's Austin explaining how the moment happened from the WWE doc, Steve Austin, the bottom line. Bam, it hit me just like that. I thought about, okay, religious, Austin 316. And the reason that popped into my head was this. Back in the day, if you always went to a football game or watched it on TV, you know, when they went to kick the extra point of the field goal, there'd always be a John 316 sign in the end zone. And so I said, okay, Austin 316. And I thought about it as soon as he told me that instant. And I said, all right, I got something for his ass. By the time Austin and Robert stepped into the ring, the story had already been told. Robert's ribs had been ravaged in his match earlier in the night against Vader, and Austin had no time for good sportsmanship. Their match was vanishingly brief, because with Austin's patched up lip, it had to be. But the brevity made a statement. The new era of pro wrestling didn't just begin in some ethereal way. It came out of the corner and stomped a mud hole in the old one. Jake the Snake Roberts stood for the past, 
But more importantly, he stood for the status quo. Sure, Jake deserved better, but he was the sacrificial lamb. His end was necessary for the new era to take shape. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like when your fantasy league meets up at your house. Everything's great until the hot plate gets too hot for the tablecloth. Now your kitchen's up in smoke. And if you don't have the right home insurance coverage, the cost to fix this is anything but a fantasy. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Not available in every state. Based on coverage selected, subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. It's easy to look at the landscape of WWE in those days and see the symptoms. The sparky plugs, the quangs. But the problem was bigger than that. It was the brightly colored tights and the blow-dried hair. That's what Austin stood in such stark contrast to. Austin, with his black trunks and his shaved head, he'd shed the trappings of the old. He was plain, and he was pissed off, even after winning. Don't just get him out of the ring, get him out of the WWF, because I proved, son, without a shadow. We've all heard this promo a hundred times, but what happens here is almost jarring to watch now, with two decades of carefully produced and scripted promos behind us. And it didn't get you anywhere. It sounds real, like Austin is doing something he's not supposed to be doing. It looks real. The sheer incongruity of Austin, you know, sweaty, bald, plainly dressed, in front of a stage prop throne gives the moment a sort of verite that's hard to process. When a wrestler can make you suspend disbelief, when they make you believe just for one moment that the put on you're watching is a real thing, that's pro wrestling at its highest point. When they can accomplish that feeling in a promo, there is no greater form of acting. In a sense though, Austin was breaking the rules. He was supposed to win the match, yeah. He was supposed to be there on the stage with Hayes afterwards, sure. But what he would say there wasn't the kind of anodyne, hey, buster stuff that fans were used to. It was crass, it was raw, and it was, well, angry. Talk about your Psalms, talk about John 316. Austin 316 says I just whipped your ass. Come on, that's not necessary. All he's gotta do is go buy him a cheap bottle of Thunderbird and try to dig back some of that courage he had in his pride. You gotta hand it to Jake the Snake Roberts, says announcer Jim Ross, who had a dream he wanted to fulfill, but came one victory short. To borrow from a famous tweet, Austin said you do not, under any circumstances, have to hand it to Jake the Snake Roberts. The old rules were out the window. Whatever you expected right then, in that moment, Austin was not going to deliver it. And Austin was angry. He was angry for a career misspent in companies that didn't see his value. He was upset at himself for not figuring out how to crack the main event. And that anger, that existential dread, came roaring out of Austin's mouth the moment he had a microphone in front of him. In a world where everything is predetermined, it stands to reason that the promos are predetermined too, but that's not always the case. According to Austin's version of events, it was all ad lib. This wasn't nothing that somebody handed me on a piece of paper. It was what I was feeling, and it was from my heart and from my guts and what was going on inside my brain and nothing but attitude and all this stuff again about being held back and here's this opportunity and I'm fixing to get to shove it up someone else's uh, ass finally. That promo was totally off the cuff and totally Stone Cold Steve Austin. Yeah, I could tell it was good. It was real good. Uh, I was, you know, very old school at the time. 
I think I started wrestling in my mother's first trimester. Um, but, so I was brought up with old school values. You know, those were just unwritten rules that you you couldn't go to um, to do a promo. But as things evolved, every form of kind of kayfabe started withering away. And, and it took me a while to get on board because I was like, man, that's not how I was taught. But that's what the audience was clamoring for. They wanted more realism. And Austin gave them that. When Vince McMahon took over the company from his father, he wanted to bring it out of the gymnasiums and the bingo halls and to make pro wrestling respectable. He succeeded in the former category, but whether or not he succeeded in the latter, well, the gambit itself was a failure because pro wrestling is awesome. Pro wrestling is exciting and primal and hugely undervalued. But pro wrestling is not respectable. It's inherently offensive. If you believe it's real, it's human cockfighting. But if you're in on the joke, well, it's performative human cockfighting, which is arguably worse. In 1996, with its neon tights and its blow-dried hair and its fancy graphics, uh, pro wrestling had lost the ability to offend. It lost its ability to say, fuck you. When you think of Stone Cold Steve Austin, what do you see? Two middle fingers raised straight in the air. He wasn't changing pro wrestling so much as he was reclaiming it. As the king of the ring, I'm serving notice to every one of the WWF superstars. I don't give a damn what they are. They're all on the list, and that's Stone Cold's list, and I'm fixing to start running through all of them. All right, Stone Cold Steve Austin it's and his remarks. 1996 WWF King of the Ring. As far as this match is considered, son, I don't give a damn if it's Davey Boy Smith or Shawn Michaels. Steve Austin's time has come. And when I get the shot, you're looking at the next WWF champion. Remember, Austin is a heel here. It's easy for that to get lost in the fog of what the Attitude Era would become. Traditionally, babyface wrestlers would turn heel by attacking their partner or by demeaning the fans. And heel wrestlers would turn face by coming to the aid of another babyface or by embracing their inner patriotism or whatever. Austin's road to Damascus moment wouldn't technically come until WrestleMania 13 the following March, but by then, it was a given. From the moment Austin 316 came out of his lips, he started getting cheers. And the next day, the signs in the audience it just caught fire like you've never seen. Quick digression. Because it's bizarre, but one of the most pivotal moments in 90s pro wrestling actually started at the 1977 NBA Finals. The Philadelphia 76ers, led by Dr. J, were taking on Bill Walton and the Portland Trailblazers. But neither of those stars was the star of the show, because out in the crowd, in a rainbow clown wig, was a man named Roland Stewart, aka Rockin' Roland, aka the Rainbow Man, with a sign that had John 316 in big letters on it. If you're over 40, you've probably seen Stuart in highlight packages. Thin, with a wild French fork beard, yeah, I looked that up, thick librarian glasses and a t-shirt with something like Jesus Saves printed on it in that classic late 70s I made my own t-shirt font. The Boston Globe called him an eccentric, which is a loaded term, but for rock and rollin', it kind of fits. Stuart invented the craze of holding up signs that read John 316 at sporting events. And he did it, well, religiously appearing at nearly every major televised sporting event from 1977 forward. The World Series, the Indianapolis 500, the Masters, and the Olympics. He was arrested by Moscow police during the 1980 Summer Games. Lots of other people followed in his footsteps, 
And long before there were ironic signs filling the stands at every pro wrestling event, there were John 316 signs in the end zones of every major football game. It was those signs that inspired Austin to think Austin 316. What a baby face, right? Well, not exactly. Eventually, Roland turned from end zone evangelism to stink bomb terrorism. Yes, stink bombing places that, according to Stewart, God thinks stink. In 1992, he entered an empty hotel room with two men and, according to the Boston Globe, ended up holding a maid hostage and threatening to shoot down airplanes. Police arrested him after an eight-hour standoff. Roland is currently serving three consecutive life sentences. Babyface and heel might be diametrically opposed ends of the ideological spectrum in pro wrestling, but even in a black and white world, the line between good and evil is razor thin. A babyface is always a misplaced punch away from villainy, and a grudging show of respect can mean total redemption for a heel. Sometimes the decision is out of the promoter's or the wrestler's hands altogether. If a hero starts getting errant booze for whatever reason, it can force a complete redefinition of the character. And if a heel starts getting cheered, even in a winking meta sort of way, it has to cause the office to reconsider their plans. And nobody is immune to swapping sides. Hulk Hogan became the nefarious Hollywood Hogan, just as notorious rapscallions like Roddy Piper and Ric Flair came to the ring to a chorus of cheers in their later years. Sometimes the change is slow moving, even when it's inevitable. And drawing it out can make for great drama. When Steve Austin cut the Austin 316 promo, he was a bad guy, and he stayed on the heel side of the roster for almost a year. But at that moment, his face turn was inevitable. Just like Jake Roberts couldn't work heel against Hogan, Austin couldn't be a heel against any top star for long in 1996. When people in the wrestling business talk about the wrestlers who transcend the form, the very best of the best, they don't usually talk about their ring work or their mic skills. I mentioned it before, they talk about it, capital I. You could tell that that guy had it, whatever that means, and whatever that means is in quotes because it's implicitly undefinable. There's a level of it that makes getting booed almost impossible. At that moment, Austin discovered a new plane of it, where babyface and heel didn't even matter. And in that moment, Austin knew it. I don't give a damn if it's Davy Boy Smith or Shawn Michaels, he says, referring to the good guy and the bad guy in the upcoming main event that night flipping the double bird to the worn-out tropes of 80s and 90s wrestling. Hayes, Doc Hendricks, remembers how quickly it was that Austin had captured the hearts of wrestling fans. I think we may have had a brief conversation about it, and, you know, he was like, well, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't have said that, but I did now. we got to go forward. <laughs> and, 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 you know, forward he went, and... I think people were still really unsure the next night on Raw until they saw the Austin 316 signs. And, you know, 316 says, I just whooped your ass. Uh, and I mean, there there were a plethora of them in, you know, 24 hours that you just couldn't deny what an effect that had on the audience. Because, you, you know, people always brought signs, don't get me wrong. And, you know whatever message they were trying to get or whatever talent they were trying to give their approval to, nothing ever was said on TV the night before and then immediately just pasted all over the audience. I even wondered at one time if we were handing out the signs and I found out we weren't. I'm proud that I was there. 
I'm more proud that I was able to give him the heads up about, you know, the Jake interview. But that once again, that was all just ad lib. That was all just off the cuff. But I guess I could say of all the things that Doc Hendricks did, that was probably my favorite. Before we go, can we talk for a minute about Doc Hendricks? Michael PSAs was one of the OG trailblazers, a guy who, along with his running mates in the fabulous Freebirds, Terry Gordy and Buddy Roberts, redefined what it meant to be a cool heel. Talk about it. Hayes oozed it. You could see the sheen of it dripping off his hairy chest. And when he came to WWE, well, they repackaged him as something else entirely. They cut his hair and they gave him a new name and made him into something they could call their own. But fans knew who he was. The gag was obvious, even if it wasn't meant to be. WWE was willing to sacrifice the legacy of Michael P.S. Hayes at the altar of ego, or at least the altar of IP. In the old days of pro wrestling, wrestlers moved around from company to company, bringing their ring names and their legacies along with them. In the 90s, WWE would bring in wrestlers with real resumes and change them into something else entirely. We'll talk more about this in upcoming episodes, but it's pertinent here. WWE changed Michael P.S. Hayes into Doc Hendricks, and they changed Mick Foley into Mankind and Stunning Steve Austin into the Ringmaster. The Stone Cold character was Austin ripping out of that misbegotten cocoon and emerging as a foul-mouthed butterfly. Austin 316 says, I just whooped your ass. That's the beginning. It's the beginning of the Attitude Era, the beginning of the two fingers in the air era of gritty badassery in pro wrestling. The Attitude Era is like six years, late 96 to 2000, but it's the centerpiece of WWE mythology. And with good reason, for those years, wrestling unequivocally felt like it mattered. And it started right there that night in Milwaukee, the beginning of the return of pro wrestling's FU. You know, it's one thing to rewatch that promo, to relive that moment, and to know what it would become. But it's another thing to see the movement begin. So as I'm writing this, I turned on Monday Night Raw from June 24th, 1996, the night after the Austin 316 promo, the night when fans started showing up by the hundreds with Austin 316 signs. The signal to WWE that a movement was beginning, except something isn't quite right. Something is most definitely wrong. So I pulled in my producer, Brian, to make sure I wasn't seeing things. Hey, Brian, get in here. Yeah. Let, let me show you something. All right. Clear your mind. Uh, take a breath. What's the story about the night after the Austin 316 promo? The story. That, you know, Austin cuts the promo, and then the next night on Raw. Oh, everybody had Austin 316 sign, and WWE knew. What do you see? <laughs> There's no signs. There's no signs. I have stared at the tape now for hours, looking for Austin 316 signs like I'm looking at the Zapruder film or the Sasquatch video, looking frame by frame to see if I'm missing anything. For one thing, there aren't that many signs at all. The show's at the Brown County Expo in Green Bay, Wisconsin, and well, there's no groundswell of Austin support, no Austin mania at all. He does main event the show, but it's a match against The Undertaker, and he's in the role of the mid-card heel. He's there to have a pretty good main event match, but not to be the star. All in all, it felt, well, weirdly inconsequential. Okay, so maybe the whole crowd hadn't seen the pay-per-view the night before. They hadn't all seen the promo, and it's not like it was there on Twitter for everyone who missed the show to see. 
Back then, if you didn't see the show, well, you didn't see it. There was no way to really catch up on it. And WWE, to their credit, well, they don't pretend they hyped it up the next night. It's just that Austin 316, it's kind of invisible. I keep watching the tape. Back at this point in 1996, WWE was batch taping shows. You'd go to the arena and they'd have that night's show and also tape the next three episodes. Well, actually, to be exact, they would start with next week's show at 7 o'clock and then they would tape this week's show, which would air live, and then after that, they would tape two more. So for the next three episodes of Raw after this night, it was the exact same Austin 316 signed free crowd on July 1st, July 8th, and July 15th. But I'm watching every episode and I'm just glued to the screen. I can't look away. It's like seeing security footage of your parents putting Santa's presents underneath the Christmas tree. On July 21st, WWE went up to Vancouver for a smallish pay-per-view called In Your House International Incident, where Austin beat Mark Marrow. It was a grudge match to get Marrow back for busting Austin's lip. Austin isn't the star of the show by a long shot, but one really important thing happens here. Jim Ross is on commentary, and he's talking of Austin like a legitimate competitor. It's not just storyline stuff and calling out moves. He's methodically explaining to the audience why we should care about Steve Austin. But uh, Austin is as technically sound, as fundamentally sound as anyone we have seen in the WWF in quite some time. He is destined for superstardom personified. As Mark Merrow comes out to the ring, the camera pulls back to a wide shot and you can just barely see Merrow's head over the arms of the fans and there it is. A few rows back from the aisle, a few rows back from ringside. One sign with giant block letters. Austin 316. You can go look at it now. It's at the 32 minute 44 second mark. That guy or girl, whoever was holding that sign, you win the prize. That's it. As far as I can tell, that's the first one. In the match, Austin Stunner gets a big reaction from the crowd. And right after the match, when the ref is raising his hand, you can see Austin mouth out the words. That's the bottom line. Austin 316, and he spells it out with hand gestures. Three, one, six. It took a month, but it just explodes from there, right? Except it doesn't. The next night, on July 22nd, they filmed the next four-week block at the Key Arena in Seattle, and nothing again. There were a few Sunny signs. Sunny was the biggest female star at the beginning of the Attitude Era, and for a while, at least according to legend, she was the most downloaded woman on the internet. So yeah, there are Sunny signs. Uh, there's a Happy Birthday HBK sign, uh, and there's another one that says, Hi, Grandma, it's me, Guida. Guida, if you're out there, give us a call. But no Austin 316 signs. That night, Austin comes out to do commentary during Mark Marrow's match. If you need any other evidence that we're in a holding pattern, instead of moving into a bold new era, it's the continuation of this Austin Marrow grudge. Austin's wearing his trademark leather vest here, and that seems important. The stone cold we know is beginning to emerge. He shit talks most of the roster, including Bret Hart, who's sort of on indefinite leave from the company, and Austin's making fun of him for that. That's also important. But anyway, the rest of the show is taped that night in Seattle, July 29th, August 5th, and August 12th. There's no Austin 316 signs. Then August 18th is SummerSlam. Austin isn't even on the main show. He wrestles Yokozuna on the pre-show, and the big moment of that match is Yoko breaking the ring ropes because he's so heavy. That was scripted, yes. That match is on WWE.com, but it's not even part of the SummerSlam broadcast on Peacock. 
It's not really until October 21st, 1996 that the momentum starts to shift. They start a four-taping stand in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and there's an Austin 316 sign in the front left section. You don't really get a good look at it until Austin has a match that aired on the November 11th show, but if you look for it, it's there. And then at the next taping in New Haven, Connecticut on November 18th, that's WWE home turf for those who are interested, well, then the signs finally start multiplying. But I just had to wonder, was I blind? Was I losing my mind? Was, was the crowd really not caught up in stone cold hysteria like we're always told that they were? I needed to find somebody who could confirm this, somebody who was there. So I started asking around and that's when I found Carlos Herrera. I mean, I already knew Carlos. He's been at most of the WWE shows I've been to as an adult, and he's definitely gone to more shows in the New York area than I have. A mutual friend once called him the pro wrestling Forrest Gump. He's walking around through WWE history almost by accident, like the time he was standing in the background when Austin stunned Vince McMahon for the first time. And we'll talk about that in later episodes. Anyway, if anybody could tell me whether or not this was real, it was Carlos. So I gave him a call. Been a fan since 84, 85. I have a long history of WWE. Carlos crossed paths with Stephanie and Shane McMahon before they were household names. He was friends back in the day with folks like wrestling journalist Mike Johnson and former WWE head writer Vince Russo. And I can tell you this as I literally lived through it. So that May, and there was a show before that in 96 that had a great crowd, like a sellout in March. I think this is when Diesel turned heel, officially, you know. Then it dropped big in the, in the fall. It dropped huge. I and the reason why I'm telling you this for a fact is I went in September 96 to the garden, and that was my first day with my current wife. It was the Big Bang. We went to the show, and I remember being at this garden show, and it was empty. So when people say that Stone Cold turned heel in the summer of June, and it became a thing, it wasn't a thing yet, because in the summer of, of, of 96, he wrestled on the pre-show for SummerSlam. You know, he wasn't a thing yet. He became a thing that November, in my opinion, when he fought Brett at the garden when Brett came back. That's what it exploded. This is exactly what I want to talk to you about, all right? Because I'm doing this podcast, and I get to interview guys. I get to call them, interview them, get this, like, fresh new audio. What you see over and over again is that they've told the story so many times. Whatever they've told is the truth now. It's not what happened. Of course, that's, that's their narrative. No. In the perfect world, the story sounds great that he said it, and it boomed. It didn't happen like that. It, it was a very small build. Look, I, I pulled this out for you. This is what we will remember um, for a while. He's holding up a photo of what the ringmaster, Steve Austin, with the million-dollar belt over his shoulder. Right. Yeah. This is this is Mania 12. His character was not over. As a fan, I was like, this is Steve Austin from WCW. What was going on here? He says this line. It was great. I remember sitting there going, this is a great line. You know, him doing his thing. But it didn't just take off that way. September 96 came in. Because in August, he wrestles on a pre-show with Yoko. On the network, it doesn't even exist. And then September 96 comes in your house in Philly with the ECW angle. But what started there was him and Pillman with the I want to wrestle you. He does the gun thing at the home, which Vince goes on live wire the following Saturday to apologize. And then he gets this amazing amount of attention. October comes, he wrestles in your house at, at, uh, with Hunter. November, he wrestles Brett. And those promos, if you look them up, Prior to Survivor Series 96, it just takes off. He's saying things that, first, it was filmed in a way that they don't film promos. It was in black and white. It was cut in between, like, they were doing shots, like, in between. It was in a, almost like that raw intro warehouse, like a dirty background, like a dirty, broken building. 
But the Austin character to me took off there. It went to another level. And then where you really want to turn it was at Mania 13 when he wrestles Brett in the submission match with the bleeding and the, and the switch of characters. A lot of times he'll say things and the next day it's on shop.com. It was a thing that he said and I remember vividly that it wasn't like a I didn't make it a thing in my head. It's around there because I remember the NWO shirt came out at that time and I ordered it instantly when it was on Nitro. I remember vividly calling in going, I want a shirt. And the shirt came out and it became a thing and he got bigger and bigger. And then it went and took off. But to me, between that November to that March of Mania 13 is when he took off, which again, this is the ticket for WrestleMania 13. And you actually see me front row Austin comes around. I'm giving him, like, going crazy. I'm giving him Brett the finger. I'm like, I laugh because I'm looking at myself now because I must have been in my early 20s just losing my mind for the match, you know, as my first time in Chicago at the time. That's where he really took off. He says it in June. Momentum builds. September comes. That's the Pillman angle. Momentum builds. And then by November, that, that's when you feel it. And I remember being in college and people coming up to me. Yo, did you see the Austin promo? From the 97 audience in 96, it's night and day. Now you're in Main Street. We, we're not going to go there, obviously, we were talking about that time. But 96, going into that time, there is a a change that if you live through it, it's crazy. It's fun. It's unusual. Why would they lie about this? I know, it seems weird to use words like lie and true when you're talking about pro wrestling. But this is a deliberate choice. And maybe, maybe if you're not a pro wrestling fan, and if you're not... Thank you for listening. Maybe if you haven't watched years and years of documentaries and promo packages like I have, well, maybe you're thinking, okay, Michael Hayes was wrong in this interview. No, let me assure you, this is not a one-time thing. This is the story that WWE has always told about the birth of Austin 316. And the next day, the signs in the audience, it just caught fire like you've never seen. After that promo, the next night, there were signs everywhere. Those words oh, yeah. fell out of his mouth and the crowd responded. The next yeah. night at TV, people are holding up Austin 316 signs. Listen, maybe this is just a few months of difference in the story. Maybe it doesn't matter in the big picture, but it matters to me. <laughs> and maybe I answered my own question. Why would they lie? Well, that's the story they've chosen to tell. The stories in pro wrestling aren't contained to the ring. In a world built on imagination and narrative, the story is the truth. Think of what Triple H said last episode about guys fighting in bars to protect wrestling. Guys that had spent their careers and their lives fighting over kayfabe and trying to, to prove that it was real. And most of those stories, a lot, not all of them, but a lot of them are trumped up about guys and I, you know, I, in my life in bars, fighting over the legitimacy of gay family. No, you didn't. You didn't fight anyone. If you hang around the pro wrestling world long enough, you'll hear lots of stories about wrestlers' real-life exploits outside the ring. The time so-and-so fought off 10 bikers with a beer in one hand, or the time so-and-so punched out three cops and stole their patrol car. It happens even more, though, when pro wrestling companies tell their own stories. In WWE, and no wrestling company has ever been so well documented. There are a lot of them. My favorite one is how Hulk Hogan didn't know if Andre the Giant would let him win at WrestleMania 3 until he went up for the body slam. As if Andre the Giant was some sort of unreliable force of nature, or as if Hogan and Vince McMahon would have left that up to chance. 
and fans still argue to this day about the attendance numbers at that show. WWE, as part of their narrative, WWE says there were 93,173 people there, and many, or most people disagree. I mean, listen, everybody, every concert, every sport, everybody inflates attendance numbers. But WWE ticket sales have become the stuff of conspiracy theory because the stories live on, because the half-truths are retold in the documentaries and on the shows, because they're part of the, well, myth-making machine. Deliberately or not, that's what happened here. Somebody told a better version of the story, a more exciting version or a neater version, and because WWE writes their own history, it became the truth. The fact that it could be dispelled by the video on their own network is beside the point. What matters here is that Austin took things into his own hands and changed the course of his career and the course of WWE and pro wrestling in general. That is undeniable. But a thing like that is hard to prove. The fans bringing the signs to the arena, well, it's a physical thing. That's, that's a way to prove the point. Whether it's literally true doesn't matter as long as it's thematically true. The Austin 316 promo was when the Attitude Era started. I'll say that right here. It just might have taken them a while to realize that. And hey, it's a good story. All the attention on this promo was paid to the Austin 316 part, and justifiably so. The signs, the t-shirts, it all came from that. But for all the ways that that line symbolically echoed through the following decade, the closing line of this promo literally echoed. Austin would close almost every promo from here on out with this line, this beautiful, beautiful line. And that's the bottom line, because Stone Cold said so. You hear that? It's a literal statement of self-actualization. This is the truth, because it is my truth. The future of pro wrestling would be defined by whatever Stone Cold decided it would be. It works because it's true. Well, it's true because he says it's true. That's all that matters. Was Doc Hendricks a necessary step for the Austin 316 promo? Do you think, I mean, there's no way that would have happened if it was just somebody else up there, right? I mean, just nothing works out the same way. Well, I, I can't say, because I, you know, if it was a different interviewer and would they have been standing in the garage when Austin came out? Would they have even said, well, Jake said something about John 316? I, I can't say, that's just speculation. But I believe I was supposed to be there and that was supposed to happen. And that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. I wrote and recorded this podcast. The show is executive produced by superstar Bill Simmons, Sean the Strangler Fennessy, and Jumpin' Juliet Littman. Our producers are B. Brian Walters, Taskmaster Troy Farkas, Cassius Freakin' Fleming, The Z-Man, Dan Zampillo, and Vivacious Vikram Patel. Sound design and mixing by superstar Scott Somerville. The music you hear in this episode is from Epidemic Sound and Blue Dot Sessions. Copy editing by Craig the Animal Gaines and fact checking by Dangerous Damian Burchard. Art direction and illustration by me. I'm David Shoemaker, aka The Masked Man. Thanks for listening.